I once heard a friend say that there are 65 books of the Bible that speak to you, but the Psalms are the only one that speaks for you. There are 65 books of the Bible that speak to you, but the Psalms are the one that give you language and speak for you. So I think it's very fitting this morning as we look at Psalm 77. The title is called A Psalm for the Disoriented, Those Who Feel Disoriented. So let me pray and then I'll read for us Psalm 77. God, thank you that you are our Father and you love us. I pray that you would help us to experience you in times of trouble as this psalm gives us language to do. And I pray that you would just be exalted through this and we would see you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you will, turn with me. Psalm 77. Beginning in verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I meditate, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron. So, Psalm 77, and by way of organizing this uh, sermon, we're going to look at this in three different ways that the psalmist is dealing with his disorientation. So, point number one is going to be present circumstances, point number two is going to be past longings, and the third is going to be remembering the Lord is our Redeemer. Three different ways in which the psalmist deals with his disorientation. Present circumstances, past longings, and remembering the Lord is our Redeemer. So to the best of our knowledge, we don't really know who wrote this psalm. Most people see that the psalm is written by an individual, but believe that it was intended for the community of worshipers, the community of people, to provide a cry and a kind of lament to offer to God in our time 
of trouble. It was a psalm that was sung aloud in worship to remember God's faithful care towards his people. So it is a psalm for individuals, and it's a psalm for us as a community. So our first point, present circumstances. If you look with me at the first four verses of the psalm, it's very, very evident that whoever's writing this is in a time of deep despair and trouble, right? I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is an intense time of felt experiential trouble. An intense time of trouble. We don't know the exact circumstances, but what we do know is that there seems to be no comfort in the midst of this trouble. And what I think is really, really amazing about this psalm in these first few verses is that the psalmist is giving us an incredible language of faith, right? He's actually crying out and saying, I cry aloud to God, he will hear me in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, and yet there's no comfort, but what the psalmist is doing is actually giving us the substance of faith. Even though he's not experiencing comfort, He's still bringing that circumstance to God, still bringing that trouble to God. It's a great and godly thing, and so I think it's right for us to wonder, why is there no comfort in this approach? Why is there no comfort in this approach? Well, maybe uh, you're like me, where you've had some circumstances in life where you felt like you're in this position. You're in this certain position where your present circumstances and you're crying out to the Lord, you feel like you're troubled, you feel afflicted, something's going on internally or externally, and when you remember God, you moan. You struggle with going to sleep. You struggle to believe God's promises because it doesn't feel like they are true. That is what's going on in this scenario. Maybe there's moments in our life when we pray for God to take something away from us or for some circumstance to change or for some restlessness to go away, and it seems to only get worse. That's what's going on in this psalm. And what happens is what we tend to do is we view God's care, we view God's faithfulness alone through the lens of our circumstance. Right? We begin to focus on what's not happening, what we don't have, the sleep we can't get, the pain we feel, the lack of comfort, the fact that going to God, the double pain, that when we go to him for comfort, it seems like there's no relief. But there's even more affliction. John Calvin, about this psalm, he says this. He says, It may indeed seem strange that the mind of true believers should be troubled by remembering God. But the meaning of the inspired writer simply is that although he thought upon God, his distress of mind was not removed. It no doubt often happens that the remembrance of God in the time of adversity aggravates the anguish and trouble of the godly For example, when they entertain the thought that he is angry with them. The prophet, however, does not mean that his heart was thrown into new distress or disquietude whenever God was brought to his recollection. He only laments that no consolation proceeded from God to afford him relief. And this is a trial which is very hard to bear. I'm going to reread that last line. I think this is really important. He says, The prophet, however, does not mean that his heart was thrown into new distress or disquietude whenever God was brought to his recollection. He only laments that no consolation proceeded from God to afford him relief. And this is a trial which it is very hard to bear. The one place that we can go for comfort 
the one place we can go for care, and it seems like there is no relief. The Bible is pretty clear throughout that there's a distinction between God's care for us and God's cure of us, right? There's a distinction between God's care for us and God's cure of us. And I think this psalm really gives us some language to teach us that Christians go through times of deep distress, where we feel a deep sense of anguish and trouble. That there are times when we bring our pain to God and it seems to only prolong our pain. God's care for us throughout the Bible is not often our cure for us. And this is very challenging, right? Because we want to go to our pastor or our mentor, whoever it is in the faith that we really respect. We want to go to them with some sort of problem or some sort of issue and we want to get better, right? We want to be relieved of something. It's the nature of the human condition that we go to someone to try to improve or to get better. And we all know in our own experience, right, that that doesn't always happen. Sometimes going to someone to talk about something, it just prolongs the pain. It prolongs the trouble. We want the trouble in our friends' lives to go away or dissipate. But sometimes God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his care for us, seems to leave us without a cure. And that brings us to our next few verses in this psalm, our second point. So from present circumstances to past longings. Look with me at verse 5. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. So in the midst of whatever present circumstances are going on in the psalmist's life, His next way of trying to deal with his disorientation is to reflect on the past, to reflect on the glories of the past, to reflect on some kind of recollection that was powerful and strong that allowed him to experience God's mercy and God's grace. What's going on right here is that the psalmist is showing for us what we all have, which is a longing for home, a longing for being with God. A longing for things being made right. Tim Keller, he says that you can't understand the human condition without understanding our felt experience of alienation. You can't understand the human condition without understanding the concept of alienation because we are made for a glorious home. Part of God's grace to us and mercy to us is to leave us in our longings. Longing for God where we can actually begin to experience and be revealed to us what we're really made for and what we cannot possibly live without, which is God himself. So for you, what are those kind of things that have given you a glimpse of home? Maybe it's some experience from a sermon from some church service in the past. Maybe it's a retreat. Maybe it's a camp, right? Maybe it's some sort of aha moment in life where we felt the presence of God, where we experienced Christ, some sort of mountaintop kind of experience. And yet what we see in the psalm is that the past doesn't always replicate itself. It doesn't always replicate itself. I mean, the crux of this whole psalm is the next three verses, seven through nine. It's the reality of his experience that God is leaving him in these longings because this is what he says. Don't miss these questions. These are very, very powerful questions. This is what he says. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger 
shut up his compassion. Essentially, will the Lord see our weakness? Will he see our trouble? Will he see our suffering? And will he not act? Right? That's our greatest fear deep down is that God ultimately doesn't care for us. That God ultimately won't provide for us. That God is ultimately not who he says he is. And one of the most remarkable things about these questions is that they're in the Bible, right? Like these very questions that may feel like doubt, they may feel like the antithesis of faith, they're located here in God's inspired word. We actually see in the Bible these kinds of questions, Christians asking these incredible questions that God has put here for us to learn from. This is the gift of the Psalms. They give us words for us, right? They help us to understand the breadth of our human emotion and to bring those things to God. So what the psalmist is doing is he's bringing his disoriented heart to God. Is this the end of God's favor? Is this the end of God's love? Is this the end of God's promises? Is this the end of God's grace? Is this the end of God's compassion? I think John Calvin says it well. He says, his object is not to overthrow his faith, It is to raise his faith up. So in asking these questions, he's not trying to overthrow his faith, but he's raising his faith up through bringing these questions to God himself. So obviously, the psalm was written a long time ago. It was written over 3,000 years ago, and that is a long time before Google, you know, was invented. But the sentiments from Christians and non-Christians, when you go to Google and you type in the phrase, does God care about, you know, you'll see all these different things that kind of pop up, right? The most likely things to fill in the blank, to populate the answer, does God care about? Here are the five things that came up, at least when I searched this in Tuscaloosa. Does God care about sports? Does God care about us? Does God care about who wins the Super Bowl? Does God care about football? And does God care about the little things? So the substance that Christians and non-Christians are asking Mr. Google, right, is does God care about us and does God care about football, right? Those are are the two big questions that people are asking according to Google. Does God care about us? It's a timeless question, right? It's a question that the psalmist is asking. I mean, sure, he was favorable to people beforehand, but is he really favorable to us? Does he favor us? Does he love us? Are his promises true for us? Is he gracious to us? Is he compassionate to us? And the psalmist actually helps us to locate an answer to these questions. The very questions that he's answering are answered in the last 10 verses of this psalm. That brings us to our last point, which is remembering the Lord our God is our redeemer. So look with me at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is there like our God? This is an incredible shift in the psalm. So, Throughout the whole psalm, there's been an I, 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 right? Throughout the whole thing. And all of a sudden in verse 11, you see that there's this switch where it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. There's a shift from I to your. In this psalm, it's, it's pretty drastic. 
right? I mean, it feels like God has been talked at at a distance, and now all of a sudden he's referred to up close in the second person that suddenly there's a dialogue that's going on. I don't think a lot of people have, have, have imagined this better than C.S. Lewis in his amazing Chronicles of Narnia series. Many kids, many adults have read these books, or maybe you've watched the movies, right? But you have the main characters in the book, the four children, Peter, Lucy, Susan, and Edmund. And what happens is that these four kids find themselves in another world, in Narnia. I'm not going to spoil anything, don't worry. And what's more is that they become crowned the kings of the land, right? It's their world to rule and to reign, But something happens, and they start to realize that although they're kings and queens, that there's a greater king at hand who's present, the mighty lion Aslan. It's not just their world that they're in anymore. They're in someone else's world and someone else's story. And that's what's happening in this psalm. We realize we're in someone else's world and someone else's story. It's not just our world. That in the midst of his disorientation, he recognizes that someone else is out there, someone who is great, someone who is to be worshipped and in awe of, someone else who has been at work. But I don't want you to miss this. Something even better is happening. If you look at verse 11, notice the word, if you have it in in the ESV, it says, I will remember the deeds of the all-capitalized Lord, right? L-O-R-D, all-capitalized Lord. Yahweh. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. The first time in this whole psalm that God is referred to as his covenant name, Yahweh, is in verse 11. So the God that is being referred to here is not just some abstract big God who's in heaven who created everything, but it is the specific God who has intervened in time and space as our Redeemer who as it's going to display in the last 10 verses of this psalm, has redeemed Israel, has brought them out of Egypt, has brought their life up out of the pit. The God who has acted, there's a specific God who's both our creator and our redeemer. As I was studying this, I thought this was kind of interesting because you'll notice that the last half of this psalm has a lot of references to lightning and thunder. Uh, Both Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, and Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s, Both of them, as they were growing up, they said that they only viewed God as their creator. So whenever there was a thunderstorm, whenever there was some kind of storm going on outside, they both talked about how terrified they were because they were in awe of God, but they didn't know God's heart. They didn't know the character of the God who made this thunderstorm, so they were terrified. They were in awe, but they were in awe and terror. And later on in their life, as they came to know God not only as their creator, but also as their redeemer, they went through this incredible transition where they began to experience these things in creation like thunderstorms, exactly like the psalmist is saying, that it's a display of the heart of God, of God's power and God's love and God's mercy to us. What I'm trying to say to you this morning is that if we only have a knowledge of God as our creator, then we've only gone halfway. The knowledge of God, our creator, should lead us always to the knowledge of God, our redeemer, so we know the heart of our creator. We know how much he loves us, how much he delights in us, how much he has acted in time and space to redeem his people, the specific God, Yahweh himself. And we see this where the psalmist recalls the Lord's redemptive works of the past, right? I mean, verse 10, again, I'll appeal to this, to the years of the the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old, and he goes on and on to talk about the ways in which God has delivered his people. 
So it's very clear that in the midst of suffering, this psalm is teaching and training us to remember the Lord. It's a way to see God's care, to see God's promises, God's love, God's compassion, God's favor, to remember. Eugene Peterson, he says that most of our lives consist in what God has done, creating us, speaking to us, loving us. If we are not able to remember any of this, we are bereft of the richest dimensions of our beings, of our being. Sometimes it feels just beyond our grasp, the reality of the richest dimension, that there's more going on in life than we see, that God himself is working, caring, displaying his holiness, his greatness, his wonder, his redemption, his power over all, and his heart of love. See, the psalm reminds us that he is a deliverer. Verse 15 says, you with your arm redeemed your people. Explicitly, the word redeemed is being used. But as I said earlier, right, God's care for us is not always a cure for us. So these people had remembered the Lord's work in the past of how he delivered them, and yet they are still questioning, does God still really care for his people? And we know more than the psalmist, right? We know more than what's going on in Psalm 77. We have the rest of the Bible. We know that God is a redeemer who has offered a redemption fuller than we could ever dream. God himself took on flesh and took on a foe much greater than Egypt. His redemption would be from death itself in order to redeem us, our redeemer himself would die. Right? This is all of what Psalm 77 is pointing to. You see it in the life of Jesus when he asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the combination of these questions of, God, do you really care? God, are you really merciful and yet incredible obedience? Jesus himself models asking these questions and yet fulfilling the role of our covenant redeemer. His life, his death, his resurrection is the ultimate sign of God's grace, his love, his favor, and his compassion toward you and I. It's the securing of the promise that those things will never end, even though we can continue to cry out and ask those questions, God, has your steadfast love really come to an end? We know that God did not withhold his son from us. As John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you're in a time of trouble right now or you know someone who is, cry out with those questions. Bring those to God. And remember rightly, as Michael Reeves says, that the glory of God will bring the right, bigger, healthier, and happier perspective to all that we are going to. He is a sufficient redeemer. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that you not only uh, speak to us, but you feed us. Thank you for the meal that you're about to give us, for us to feed by faith upon you, who are in heaven at the right hand of our Father. Jesus, you are our Redeemer, and, and yet, uh, at, at times, it, it's hard for us to believe that this is so, given the experiences that we experience. And yet, Lord, you've given us this language to realize that even in our times of trouble, even as we experience these things, that they're a sign, not of the absence of your care, but the presence of your care. That we will go through trouble, we will, will go through the valley of the shadow of death, and you are there. You are present, 
You are the one who is holding us, loving us, caring for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just help us more and more to see you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.